Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is part four of The Scapegoat, David Cayley's continuing exploration of the ideas of French thinker René Girard. Within the growing circle of his readers and intellectual colleagues, René Girard is regarded as one of those fundamental thinkers who changes the way people look at the world. Paul Dumouchel at the University of Quebec at Montreal says that Girard has completely modified the landscape in the social sciences. Sandor Goodhart of Purdue University thinks that he has provided the Archimedean point from which all knowledge can be potentially rethought. And British theologian James Allison says that when he first read Girard's book, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, it clarified his own deepest concerns so completely that he felt as if the book were reading him. These accolades refer to what René Girard calls the mimetic theory, a theory whose full sweep takes in the nature of emotions, the roots of violence, the history of religions, and the distinctiveness of the modern world. At its center is the idea that human societies organize themselves around scapegoats, as a way of containing their violence. In the last episode of our series, Girard looked at the Christian New Testament and how he thinks it exposes scapegoating by definitively revealing the innocence of the victim. Tonight we continue with a program about how this revelation affected the world. The Scapegoat, Part 4, by David Cayley. To René Girard, the Judeo-Christian revelation represents a decisive turning point in the history of the world. To understand why, you need to know how he thinks all societies before the Bible were organized. Human beings, in Girard's view, are highly imitative creatures, which means that negative emotions can quickly multiply in human groups, and violence spread out of control. That's why he calls his theory the mimetic theory. The first cultures dealt with this danger by transferring their violence to a surrogate victim, a scapegoat whose death or expulsion united and dissolved all hatreds. This mechanism, Girard believes, is immensely powerful. The victim acts on the dispersed and disorderly group like a magnet, which suddenly pulls a chaotic pile of iron filings into alignment. And because the community owes its entire order, its peace, to its victim, the victim is conceived as sacred as a god. But at the same time, the victim is also believed to be really guilty, and therefore deserving of the collective violence of which he's the target. This ambivalence of the victim pervades mythology, or what Girard calls the archaic sacred. The gods are criminals, violent, jealous, incestuous, as any glance through mythology will reveal. But they are at the same time saviors, creators of order, founders and benefactors of culture. One can say, therefore, that culture originally rests on a precious error, a saving lie about violence. By supposing their victims guilty and their gods bloodthirsty and violent, people were able to push their own violence away and create within their communities an order and an awe of the sacred in all its terrible and bloody beauty which left them generally well-disposed towards one another. The Bible, Girard believes, undoes these illusions and associates the whole surrogate victim mechanism with Satan, whom it calls a murderer, 
the father of lies, the prince of darkness. The scriptures disentangle God from human violence and reveal the innocence of the victim. Jesus dies like any guilty hero, Girard says, but his cross, instead of ratifying his guilt, proclaims his innocence. It is the revelation of what that violence is about, that that violence is untrue, is a lie. The violence of scapegoating in myth is reported as the guilt of the victim. If everybody believes in that guilt, if everybody can transfer against that scapegoat, they won't transfer against each other. Therefore, the misinterpretation of the collective murder is the peace of the world, the peace as the world gives it. But the cross is the true representation of what should be hidden in order to work. Why is Satan the prince of darkness? Because his secret is hidden. And the cross reveals it. It's already revealed in the Old Testament. If you look at the 52-53 Isaiah, you know, the death of a servant, it shows very well it's an innocent victim killed by a mob for no reason. A mad mimetic mob. Therefore, the cross is more than a sign. The cross is giving away the secret of Satan. Scapegoating preserves social peace, Girard says, only so long as the scapegoaters don't know what they're doing. That, after all, is the definition of scapegoating, persecution of an innocent victim believed to be guilty. The crowd that hails Jesus on his entry into Jerusalem, then turns on him a week later, believes him guilty. They are imprisoned in what Girard calls mimetic emotion, a feeling that swells magnetically through a group, dissolving all differences, until the only difference that remains is the opposition between the unanimous crowd and their victim, the outsider, the guilty one. Jesus challenges and undermines this unanimity. Jesus doesn't work as a scapegoat because he divides people. At the end of the Gospel of John, every time Jesus speaks, people are divided about him. Discords breaks out. Every time he makes a miracle, every time he says something, he dissolves the sacrificial protections, the unanimity of the archaic society. What Girard calls sacrificial protection is the spell that falls over a group that acts as a whole against a victim and the aura of sacredness that the victim's death confers on the group's way of life. Jesus breaks this spell, and in doing so, he places himself in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, who all denounced sacrifice as discordant with the nature of God. Stop worshiping victims, the prophets all say, and understand that God has nothing to do with victimization. But Christianity, Girard says, also makes a puzzling departure from Judaism by seeming to return to the mythic pattern of the old religions the prophets were denouncing, a pattern in which a crisis is overcome by the killing of a victim who then resurrects as a god. Judaism is completely indispensable to Christianity. And at the same time, Christianity contradicts or seems to contradict the greatest conquest of Judaism, which is the de-victimization of God, de-divinization of victims. Because once again, in Christ, 
You have a victim who is God. You have a God who is a victim. As if we were in myth. No wonder all the mon monotheisms which call themselves strict see in Christianity not only a monotheism which is quite relaxed, but no monotheism at all, maybe a betrayal of monotheism. And the Trinity doesn't help because they think that the Trinity is three gods. This discrepancy between Christianity and Judaism appears to be a contradiction, Girard says, but reveals itself on further analysis to be a continuation of the logic of Judaism. The Hebrew Bible separates God from all scapegoats and shows that the divine does not depend on the scapegoat mechanism. But it also goes further and shows God to be on the side of victims. From the blood of murdered Abel, which cries out to God from the ground, to the vindication of persecuted Job. Christianity, Girard says in a recent essay, takes this rapprochement between God and the scapegoat as far as possible, which means all the way to a complete identification. God willingly becomes the scapegoat of his own people in order to show them once and for all their error in persecuting scapegoats. And this identification of God with victims, Girard says, represents something that he has only recently recognized, a redemptive return to the pattern of myth, as well as its overcoming. Before, I made only great separation between archaic and the Christian, and it's necessary because it's still the monotheistic God. It's not these pagan gods. And it's not violence which is divinized. It's love. But there is complete symmetry between the two. And when there was no Judeo-Christian revelation, archaic religions were the only thing man had, the only contact with transcendence. And I think that this contact was legitimate, was real, so this complete symmetry of the symbolism between Christianity and archaic religions, you know, the fact that it's the same story is extremely important and should be read not only as separation between the two, but as union. In other words, men have always worshipped their victims. And when they were worshipping ancient gods without any knowledge of the Judeo-Christian revelation, they were right. There was a contact with real transcendence there. Christianity, as Girard understands it, brings religion full circle. It incorporates the achievement of Judaism, but returns to the older pattern of myth in order to make contact with people where they are, and thus to liberate them from the illusions of myth. So long as social order depends on the dark alchemy of sacrifice, Girard says, humanity lies within the power of what the New Testament calls Satan, the accuser of mankind. So Jesus takes his stand within this kingdom, submitting to it in order to lead people out of it. Jesus acts like God in the territory of Satan. In the territory of Satan, Jesus has to be expelled. God has to be expelled. He proves that he's God there. He demonstrates it. Therefore, God has, in a way, created a bridgehead in the kingdom of Satan, reunited God and the kingdom of Satan through his death. And that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, it's fascinating because the Holy Spirit is opposed to Satan, of course. It's the Spirit of God. 
And the Greek word for Holy Spirit is parakletos, you know, paraclete. And the word parakletos in a Greek tribunal of the time is simply the lawyer for the defense. Satan is the accuser of the mythical victim, and the Holy Spirit is the one who tells you this victim is innocent, which is what the Gospels do. The Gospels do it for Jesus, and it's especially true for Jesus, but it's also true of all mythical victims. The death of Jesus is the birth of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the lawyer for the defense. And as the defender of victims, the Holy Spirit, in effect, accuses the accuser. It introduces into history a new spirit of self-criticism. Why do you notice the mote in your brother's eye? Jesus asked in the Sermon on the Mount, when there is a beam in your own eye. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, You have no excuse, O man, when you judge another, for in passing judgment on him you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, are doing the very same things. This self-critical spirit, Girard says, will transform the world. Christians, too, will become accusers and persecutors, but they will never be free of the constantly repeated call to examine themselves and reform. We are the one society in the world which has that vocation for self-criticism. We never leave well enough alone. And the circle is never ending. The first embodiment of Christianity, okay, you have Constantine and so forth, you denounce it and then the Inquisition and so forth. Then you have the Renaissance and the Reformation. And the Reformation say, we are going to be that perfect church that the Catholics were not able to be. But after a few centuries, they become the same. But it doesn't stop there. They will be criticized too. And then they all survive together. They become a horrible big mess. But the spirit of that critique is always more powerful than the institution. And what we must purify is that critique. And it must not be a violent critique, because that critique embodies part of the same violence. It's always in the same circle of violence. You see, for instance, today, we constantly criticize ourselves, and rightly so. But if you try to say to people, from what point of view do you criticize? From what point of view are you entitled to say, this is bad. When Voltaire wrote Candide, he wanted a perfect society as a backdrop. He couldn't find one. He had to invent one. He wrote a letter at the same time saying, our society is like a siren. It's a beautiful woman on top, and it's an ugly fish, tail of a fish. You know, we are double. We are both the best and the worst. So ultimately, uh, the critique has to be criticized. And the critique of the critique has to be criticized too. In other words, we have to see that whatever you do, O oh man who judge, you are doing the same thing. So this circle is a circle of a judgment, which is we are always in that psychic space, which is circular, where you always want to turn the other into something that would be solidly posed there in front of you and separate from you because you're good and they are bad. And in a judicial affair, you have a physical separation between the two. But Christianity is constantly abolishing this separation. So the permanence of Christianity is there. 
but I think it has to receive a Christian name. I'm Paul Kennedy, and on Ideas Tonight, you're listening to The Scapegoat, a profile of French thinker René Girard, presented by David Cayley. What René Girard calls the permanence of Christianity is the continuing influence of the self-critical spirit he's been talking about. Girard recognizes, of course, that Christianity quickly became a worldly power, that Christians began to scapegoat Jews, that the cross became a sign of military conquest, that heretics were burned, and that the passion of Jesus was often interpreted not as a liberation from sacrifice, but as a ransom demanded by God as the blood price for human guilt. This, he thinks, was to be expected. But he says, nevertheless, that the gospel also worked steadily over time to decode mythology, desanctify violence, and delegitimate scapegoating. This effect, in his view, is not well recognized in the modern academy, where religion and science are strictly segregated. And consequently, he says, modern scholarship sets aside what should be its primary resource in analyzing and understanding mythology. It takes all the Bible out of the circuit and says we won't touch it because otherwise we'd be against the separation of church and state. <laughs> no. So they exclude the most important text when they are talking about the interpretation of mythology and so forth. So my point is quite paradoxical because I say, you know, the university and so forth, the people have tried to decode, as they would say, mythology for centuries. Today, they have given up. They say there is nothing to decode. Myths are only stories, imaginary stories. I say not at all. The Gospels have decoded mythology. The cross decodes mythology. The cross is science, as Paul said. The cross is not only the truth about God, who dies on the cross, but the truth about man who kills God. Therefore, when I say, you know, what I'm doing is scientific. It's the anthropology of the Gospels. Either I'm right, and what I say will become obvious sooner or later, because why are we able today to decode witch hunting texts which are exactly like myths and which we don't believe in anymore? Look at the witch hunting text in the Middle Ages. It says they all have the plague. And this guy or this woman, who may be a hunchback, who may have physical defects, who is alone in life anyway, because she's a widow and so she's ugly, she's a witch, and we must kill her, because if we kill her, she's the one who brings the plague into the community. And she probably kills little children and commits incest and parricide. If the text is medieval, we don't believe it. We say it's witch hunting, because we read it every historical world we read through the gospel. We even managed to turn that text against Christianity. Say, how could such thing continue in Christian times? Whereas we should say, we can read them because Christianity makes it possible for us to read it. But fools that you are, you cannot see that myths are exactly the same thing. 
which you are unable to decode because it's be you respect it too much. But you don't respect witchcraft texts because they were already not respectable when they happened. They were already weakened mythology. The interesting thing about the epidemic of witch hunting in the Middle Ages is not that it happened. All societies believe in witch hunting. The interesting thing is that it was the last one and it ended through the decoding of witch hunting. In other words, we understand what witch hunting is. It's ganging up against an innocent victim. We say the witch is a scapegoat. The witch was not a witch. Witch is only an accusation. doesn't exist as an institution. Some of the feminists today believe that witchcraft existed as an institution. So they say we are witches today. But no one ever said that in history before. Witchcraft was always an accusation, but not something claim, one claimed for oneself. We decode witchcraft the way we should decode mythology. The radicalness of the mimetic theory is that I say the Oedipus myth is nothing but undeciphered witchcraft epidemic. There is the plague, we need a scapegoat. That's what the oracle says. This ability to recognize scapegoating is an effect of the gospel, Gerard says, which makes itself felt over time and in people's concrete historical circumstances. Gil Bailey is a friend and colleague of Girard's who has applied Girard's insights to what he calls the contemporary cultural crisis in a book called Violence Unveiled. He agrees with Girard that the effect of the Gospels is not felt all at once, but through a continuing historical revelation. And he gives the spirit that fosters this revelation the name Girard used earlier, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, through whom, Jesus says, the truth will, in time, be more fully revealed. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I'm not going to spring the truth on you all at once, essentially, because it would be too much for you. You're not ready for it. This is part of the realism and the generosity of the biblical tradition. In other words, the sacrificial system warded off more horrendous forms of violence. And there is a kind of understanding of that economy at the same time that it's being deconstructed. So the paraclete begins to awaken the empathy for victims through history, through history, through history. So you get a progressive development of this acuity which is a, both a moral acuity, recognition of victims, and an epistemological or intellectual or cognitive acuity in the marvelous sense in which Rene has unpacked it. You know, there's that great phrase he uses where he says, we didn't uh, stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches, which to most people is completely unintelligible. But what he's saying is, if a community in the Middle Ages or whatever 
if they have a drought and that some children start to die and they suddenly think that God's punishing them and they think there must be some pollution in their society and they look around and they find some poor old Jewish woman living on the outskirts of town and they bring her in, they interrogate her and they find, oh, lo and behold, she is in fact a witch and they burn her at the stake and the next year the crops grow and the babies stop dying, they think, well, it worked and life goes on. If the babies start dying and the crops fail and they bring an old woman into town and they lynch her and moral misgivings about that, even very attenuated ones begin to stir and they begin to have doubts and they begin to think that it doesn't quite work for them. They have to account for what's happening to them in another way. They can't just account for it in this mythological way. Once their ability to be satisfied with the lynching or the sacrifice goes below a certain threshold, they have to become rational. They have to look around for other explanations for why the crops are dying and why the babies are dying. So we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. So that's part of the, the development of the power of the gospel, which has not only a moral awakening, but also an intellectual awakening. Recognition of the innocence of scapegoats, Gil Bailey says, is a mental as much as a moral achievement. It dispels the air of this is how it's always been, this is how it must always be, that attaches to social orders sanctified by victim blood. It initiates free inquiry. It undoes hierarchies. But this new freedom, René Girard has stressed, operates for ill as well as for good. Sacrifice, for Girard, is the anchor of all social order. Without sacrifice, social order becomes more fluid, more open to question, and this eventually sets free not just good things, but everything that has been contained and controlled by the old sacrificial order. Science and democracy appear, but so do vast new powers of destruction and new forms of envy. The logic of the modern world is apocalyptic, not in the sense of signs in the sky, but in the sense of uncovering and revealing, which is what the Greek word originally meant. Girard's most detailed account of how this apocalypse actually unfolds occurs in his first book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, and I want to devote the rest of tonight's program to the analysis he presents there. In that book, Girard examines a number of the masterpieces of modern fiction as a revelation of what he calls mimetic desire. Mimetic desire is that acquisitive emotion that traditional societies repress and modern societies try to harness, the desire that copies other desires and seeks to possess what others possess, thus creating what Girard calls mimetic rivalry. Girard divides mimetic desire into two phases, which he calls external and internal mediation. Desire, he says, is mediated. It copies a model. And this mediation is internal or external, depending on how the model or mediator is related to the one who emulates it. An example of external mediation is Cervantes' Don Quixote, where the Don imitates a legendary knight called Amadis of Gaul and his companion, Sancho, imitates him. External mediation is a mediation that does not 
breed mimetic rivalry because the model is too far from you. This distance may be physical, maybe a distance in time, in space, but it's also a social distance. I say, for instance, that uh, Don Quixote is the external mediator of Sancho. In other words, there cannot be any mimetic rivalry between Sancho and Don Quixote, because Sancho sees Don Quixote at an incredible distance from him. He's too modest and too nice, even though he wants to marry his daughter to a duchess, you know. But he's doing it in his own sphere, you see. But he will never question the authority of Don Quixote for anything. And Don Quixote, for his part, also has an external mediator. That's right, because he's never going to encounter Amadis of Gaul, you know, will never be a rival for him to destroy the windmills or save the beautiful ladies. <laughs> Don Quixote is no, happy as a lark, you know, he's incredibly happy. Internal mediation, on the other hand, is not a happy situation. It occurs when the mediator of desire is physically or socially close by, and it leads to rivalry. Girard finds numerous examples in the plays of Shakespeare. Internal mediation is when you will have a rivalry. In other words, when the rival is close enough to you in every way. For instance, in Shakespeare, it's very obvious, all his first comedies are stories of two male friends or two girlfriends, or four, as in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, they've always lived together. They love each other. They share the same entertainment, the same embroidery in uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And suddenly, they don't know why, they are enemies. They've fallen in love with the same uh, uh, lover. And uh, they don't understand at all. And they say to each other, you're responsible for this because you're mocking me and so forth. And the other one always answers, oh, I thought you were doing that, not me. And uh, this symmetry, I mean, uh, is marvelous. Internal mediation leads to rivalry. External mediation does not. The difference is reflected in two kinds of society. The modern, in which all are supposed equal, and traditional hierarchical forms of society in which people occupy separate spheres and so cannot, in principle, compete or compare themselves with those in other spheres. But it's also a difference that expresses itself in every form of society, Girard says, as the difference between comedy and tragedy. Internal mediation is essentially tragic, you know, is violence and death, whereas external mediation is play acting and games for children. Children who Im imitate their parents, Freud is right. But if a child has a lawyer for a father, he's going to have his little law court, you know, and act as if he were his father with, his, with other children, but it'll be a game. It will not be serious. He himself will know that uh, there is no rivalry with his father. The imitation that uh, playing is, as a child, is very interesting as a form of external, fundamental form of external mediation and a fundamental form of learning and learning a type of desire which makes you a part of your culture without creating rivalries. All that Freud doesn't have. But 
many aspects of uh, education become clear in terms of when education collapses people say oh students must not imitate their teachers what else can they do argue with them discuss with them have free and easy your ideas my ideas so forth no more education there that's what's going on now <laughs> inevitably education is imitation and if this imitation is desire of course it'll work better external mediation is desiring imitation but not rivalry internal mediation is always rivalrous these two phases of desire are both present in all societies but there is an overall direction to modern history in gerard's view and it's definitely towards more and more internal mediation he finds one of the epochs of this history well described in the writings of alexis de tocqueville on democracy tocqueville has a passage which i quote in my first book where he says uh, when human beings have destroyed the principle of hierarchy the king you know which is there in their world they think that an easy way is open to success and all the things they couldn't reach before what they don't realize is that the obstacle has changed places and also has multiplied the each obstacle is smaller but there are so many meaning everybody so i think in a way he's speaking about the difference between external and internal mediation when revolution destroys the privileges of the few de tocqueville says people encounter the competition of everyone so desire is checked even as it's encouraged to spread and this contradiction he goes on torments and tires souls de tocqueville points to what girard thinks is a crucial property of mimetic desire it cannot for long be satisfied what we desire finally is the desire of others but as soon as we have it it loses its desirability so desire in the last analysis is metaphysical what it seeks girard says is not the things others have but the other's very being being in the traditional sense there you know being absolute being i don't have it in me i don't feel it i feel my emptiness but the other always seems to have more of it than i have unless of course the other surrenders to my desire in which case being flees him very fast i contaminate him with my nothingness why is it that the other appears to have what i don't have well because what i don't have and i dream of must be somewhere in a way it's a last optimism of uh, of man i see it in my neighbor and that's what i want uh, is danke his wife and, and so forth to become him yeah you see if you take the 10th commandment it's marvelous because it's it enumerates the objects of the neighbor you shouldn't desire and then ultimately it gives up it realizes that there are too many objects it's like shifting to the new testament already it says and everything that belongs to the neighbor therefore it put the stress ultimately on the neighbor what you really desire is not the objects of the neighbor it's some quintessence of the neighbor that cannot be given a name even
What modern persons finally seek from each other, Girard says, is the sense of really existing. Everything which was not myself, Proust writes, seemed to me more precious, endowed with more real existence. Cut off from any vital contact with God, Girard says in Deceit, Desire, and the novel, men become gods for one another, although always only fleetingly. Mimetic desire pursues an illusion, and this makes it at once urgent and insatiable. The race is intense, but there's no finish line. It gets worse and worse when you have no objective element. You know, in business, people, intellectuals are contemptuous of business and so forth. But in business, you have the successful people and the unsuccessful people. If I'm losing, if my business is losing money, I immediately ask, what is my competitor doing which is better? And you will start imitating your competitor. But if you're an intellectual, you will manage to rationalize the thing and you'll always want to do the opposite of your competitor. Therefore, you'll hide the fact of imitation better. A businessman, you know, who is responsible for a business will immediately imitate his competitor. That's why the world of business probably today is more creative in relative terms than the intellectual. It's the last creative world because in intellectual life, you don't dare. I think the, the old classical theory of imitation, you know, you have to imitate the great guys. Today is not good for us because we are too proud. And uh, you reject imitation. You, everybody must be original. Therefore, everybody is co contradicting everybody else all the time. Therefore, it becomes completely abstract and has no positive, no concrete content. Therefore, creation, I think, is destroyed. Mo what is modern art? Modern art is the type of art in which you must not repeat anything. Therefore, if you discover a new line, you know, it seems to me that someone like Mahler, for instance, in music, opens new areas of dissonances and harmonies, you know, which in other times would have been exploited by all sorts of disciples, you know, for a century or something, or Richard Strauss and so on. Not in our time. So today music is interrupted because, uh, you know, one is too proud to be the disciple of anybody. Therefore, one is nothing and everything. For instance, someone like Mozart, you know, it's a very interesting talk about music. The specialists say that from a technical viewpoint, Mozart is not creative. He brings nothing. But then Mozart was infinitely creative inside a framework which never felt like changing was good enough for him. So it's a totally different type of... Uh, I think the same thing is true in many uh, fields, you know. I did an article once on the word innovation. The word innovation until the 18th century is always bad, means something bad. Even the people we regard as very progressive and modern, like Montaigne, if he says innovation, it means something bad. You know, it means people who try to look new and invent things when the old stuff is better and they should stay within the right. 
beginning with the 18th century, suddenly innovation becomes good. And then you have to innovate in everything. The more the duty of innovation is pressed on us, the more, in Girard's terms, we have to conceal the fact that what is really going on is an ever more frenzied imitation of one another. One current example, which Girard has taken up in a recent essay, is preoccupation with food. Even appetites can become contaminated with mimetic desire. There are certain dishes which are fashionable and others which are not. So there, you know, I mean, here in San Francisco, they, they are very particular about food. You know, they pride themselves on being totally individualistic compared to America and the rest of the continent right. and very superior. Whereas, in fact, they imitate constantly because, of course, they read the books, you know, they live in this anorexic world where everybody talks about food, becomes obsessed with food because no one can really eat as much as they want, you know. I think that eating disorders in our world are one of the great symptoms of mimetic desire going haywire, you know. Food today has become totally contaminated with mimetic desire in a cultural way, which is very, very strange, you know because you have the scientific reports, you have, or you have, uh, you know, the doctors at Stanford who say that uh, the gymnastic facilities at Stanford are being put to a pathological use by the students who are there all day long trying to lose weight, you know, and things like that. So they are going to invent a syndrome, a gymnastic uh, excess syndrome or something like that, you know. But they don't want to talk about the culture, you know, or they want to interpret eating disorders in terms of psychoanalysis or something. And they don't want to see the social aspect, the, the crowd as model, the, the culture. Contemporary mimetic frenzy is the culmination, in Girard's view, of a growing sickness one that is already evident in the 19th century in the novels he analyzes in Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. He says, for example, that by the time one reaches the later Dostoevsky, there is no longer any love without jealousy, any friendship without envy, any attraction without repulsion. And this development, for him, moves in only one direction. Historic and psychic evolution, he writes, is irreversible. There is a sentence of Stendhal, which is, on ne remonte pas dans l'ordre des passions. One doesn't go back up in the order of passion, of, of sentiments, yeah. you know, which is a very beautiful and profound thing. One doesn't go back to the past. One doesn't become more archaic than one is now. There is one direction to history. I think Stendhal's says that. And uh, he's thinking about uh, mimetic desire, obviously, in my terms, and uh, he's defining it as a kind of a relentless movement towards that internal mediation we're talking about. Therefore, toward chaos. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. 
Tonight's program is a profile of French thinker René Girard by David Cayley. René Girard recognizes that the history of what Stendhal first called the modern emotions is not complete and that there are many intermediate stages and partial recoveries on the road to what he just called chaos. Nevertheless, he does finally believe that the Christian revelation has set an irreversible process in motion, a process which tends to the more and more complete uncovering of human nature at both its best and its worst. The worst is clearly evident in the envy, jealousy, and hatred that are progressively manifested in the great novels of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and above all in the works of Dostoevsky and Proust. But the best is also evident in the capacity of these novelists to tell the truth about mimetic desire. And this is the other side of what Girard has to say in Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. This ability to tell the truth, Girard says, is always the result of the writer's recognition that he himself is involved in the tangled web of desire he is creating, that he is posing before his readers as surely as his characters are posing before one another. Madame Bovary, c'est moi. I am Madame Bovary, as Gustave Flaubert is reported to have said about one of his characters. Girard sees a particularly strong example in the case of Marcel Proust, who underwent a dramatic personal change around the time he became capable of writing his great novel sequence, variously translated as The Remembrance of Things Past, In Search of Lost Time, or Time Recaptured. Even the handwriting of Proust change there, changes there. The people who know the manuscripts can tell immediately just looking at things if it is a pre or post time recaptured experience, you know. And Proust talks about it better outside his novel than inside his novel. For instance, he talks about the death of Don Quixote. He says the death of Don Quixote is obviously the moment of illumination when Cervantes becomes capable of writing the novel. And he, he places it in his hero who changes from the fool he was, you know, but then he dies and is reborn as the real writer of the real novel. Dying at the end of the novel is realizing everything you've done so far is pure junk. And uh, instead of giving up, the end becomes the beginning. And the writer, of course, dies to a certain type of life and starts writing the novel, which is like entering a monastery, you know, getting into the cork-lined room. So the great creative act is always a second time around. There is a first time around, which is just the vanity of the writer, you know. And if you look at the writings of Proust before Remembrance of Things Past, you can see that there are scenes, like the scene, the great scene at the theater, where the little Proust is there looking up to the, uh, you know, the box, yes. the private box, in which these people are, and they are like gods, you know. And it's the snob heroes of Marcel. If you look at the writing before, instead of being down in the orchestra, looking, you know, in great envy and appetite and inability to reach, you have Marcel, who is in the box, flattered and very well treated by the best people. So you feel it's 
wishful thinking written out as truth, the early writing, which is what all beginning writers do. And uh, <clears throat> the secret of writing is giving that up, just like the secret of great comedy, is putting yourself in the bad position. And then you become able to write truthful things about life, <laughs> you know, when you put yourself in the worst possible position. In an article published in Le Figaro around the time of writing The Past Recaptured, Proust refers to that belated lucidity which may occur even in lives completely obsessed by illusions. Elsewhere, he speaks of his new hard-won capacity to tell the truth as giving up one's dearest illusions. From the death of Don Quixote to Proust's redemption of lost time, all great conclusions in the novel are conversions, Girard says. I would never say that Proust became a Christian. He certainly didn't. But at the time of Time Recaptured, he went to André Gide. André Gide was the worst possible advisor in these matters. And he said to André Gide, something is happening to me, something very important, and I feel it's connected with religion. Should I go and look towards Christianity? And André Gide said, don't do that. <laughs> so he didn't do it. But Time Recaptures is full of Christian metaphors, full of Christian metaphors, and you can see the whole substructure is 100% Christian because it's death and uh, resurrection, destruction of the self, and the destruction of the self which results in some creative power which wasn't there before and which is undefinable. René Girard doesn't ask his readers to see Proust as a Christian, but rather to remove, as he writes, the watertight barrier which our prejudices erect between aesthetic experience and religious experience. Proust's great work is not ideologically Christian, but Christian rather in its structure and imagery. Objectively Christian, one might say. Only Christian symbolism, Girard concludes, is able to give form to the experience of the novel. And this conclusion, he says, is warranted by his reading, not by his own Christian faith. All he has done is to make explicit and systematic what he finds in the novels. And what Girard, as a discerning reader, finally sees in the unfolding of the modern novel is an apocalypse. Apocalypse, Girard writes, means development, the working out or unfolding of implications. And in the great novelists, the logic of mimetic desire is carried to its end, which is self-destruction, but also rebirth. You'll be hearing more from Girard in the final program of this series about why the modern situation is apocalyptic. He concludes tonight by showing how the idea of apocalypse, as it's presented in The Teaching of Jesus, illuminates the history he's been discussing. If you look at the text in the light of what we are talking about, you know, texts like uh, I bring the sword, not peace. I will separate the father from his son and so on. The daughter from her mother, the mother-in-law from her daughter-in-law. You know, that's in the Gospels. But people forget about that because it's so scary. And it's an annou the announcement of a world which will be no longer protected by sacrificial 
protections, I would say today. The Christian world is, is a world where the sacrificial protections collapse more and more. Therefore, you have only Christian love or hatred, you know, all this sort of internal mediation. So I would say we have to bring these texts back and disagree with the theologians who tell us uh, the Apocalypse was a big mistake, you know, it was borrowed from the Jews and so forth. No, no, no. It was a profound insight that Christianity uproots culture in terms of sacrifice, therefore delivers it unto the powers of destruction if it doesn't choose Christian love. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part four of The Scapegoat, a five-hour series about the thought of René Girard. The series concludes tomorrow night. René Girard's new book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, is published in Canada by Novalis and is available in bookstores. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. Our technical director is Dave Field, associate producer Liz Nage. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of audio cassettes for $39.95. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or by email, it's ideas at cbc.ca. We also accept credit card orders by phone, area code 416-205-7367. That's 416-205-7367. 7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news.